Our opening words this morning are from my colleague, Unitarian Universalist minister, Gretchen Haley. This is a call for all the people longing for liberation, all who wander too often the desert, not sure of the way forward, too often thirsty and afraid, looking for water. Here is a call to collect ourselves and the hopes we have tucked away set aside too often for another day. Here, we are building a welcome table that never finds its end, a river that cannot run dry. The waters are always rapid and then still, steady. And then waterfalls. There is nothing tidy or perfect possible in this journey. Abundant life is messy and glorious, filled with risk. This is a call for the diving in with all the dreams of your heart. The struggles, the silliness, the fear, the hunger, the courage, the community, the love. Here we remember the time for joy is always now.
Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Brian Pashigian, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning, whether you're here in the room with us or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you from what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after platform for cookies and coffee and a lot of extra fun today in the lobby in the social hall. And also please consider sharing your email on the gold sheet that was found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later. I want to remind everyone to silence their electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning. Although we'd love it if you could check in on social media. And now I invite Liza to read our statement of purpose so that way we may hear our shared values in each other's voices. Liza is part of our coming of age program, which starts tonight. We are full of expectations for them and their families. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you. As Liza lights our community candle, I invite you all to join in on our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of those who are suffering the effects of Hurricane Dorian. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in this world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. invite you now into a time of meditation. Settle into your seat, sit comfortably, close your eyes or soften your gaze. Begin with three deep and slow breaths. 
we come to this moment with all the weight of our worries, all the wonder of our joy, and all the busyness that comes with planning and thinking and creating. We come to this moment a time to simply be, a time without expectation, without striving, a time to breathe. I invite you now to do just that, breathe. Allow the worry, the wonder, the busyness to be set aside just for a moment. Sit, breathe, be. It's good to have you back, Horace. I always miss your dulcet sounds. 
musicians over the summer, though we had so many wonderful guest musicians, and some of you sang in different configurations as well. And it is good to be back with all of you in our sort of two-platform, regular programming uh, year. I am glad to be beginning this fall with you. Unless you are brand new to Wes, and there are a number of you who have walked in for the very first time today, unless you are one of those people, you have probably heard that this is our 75th year. Because I mention it frequently from platform, and sort of like the way you mention um, to your children to clean up their um, socks, you know, on a regular basis. Here it is, the 75th. Again, we've toasted with champagne in January and had birthday cakes in May and celebrated in a number of ways. And we have been thinking through this year about what it was that the founders imagined 75 years ago. Those of you who were here in May at the platform that featured the um, black and white movie reels will know that we have a sketch comedy group thinking about what those founders imagined 75 years ago. They um, showed some of those films in May, and I believe they will be added again live action at the auction coming up in early November. And we'll see some more of our um, history, or perhaps it would be better described as um, inspired by our history loosely and with wild abandon. I have been thinking, though, about what the founders hoped to create in 1944. We actually know some of that story because there was a meticulous history keeper who has written an extremely in-depth history of those first 20 years or so. If you, by the way, want to be um, the meticulous history keeper for our current history, please do let me know. It's incredible to have this primary source available to us. So we know some of the story of what they hoped in 1944. We knew there was a group of people here in D.C., many of them brought here because of the war effort and the expanding federal government, who were looking for a place for their children that was an alternative to traditional Sunday school. We know people were searching for community for many of the same things that we search for now. But of course, they were living in a radically different world, a different Washington, D.C. in 1944, a different America. That year, for those of us who were not alive, I will remind us of our history. That year, FDR was elected to his fourth term as president, though he would die the next year and be unable to fulfill it. We were deep in World War II. All white primaries, a disenfranchisement method used in a number of southern states, were just prohibited that year in a Supreme Court decision. The United Negro College Fund was incorporated in 1944. The first plutonium was produced in Washington State in 1944. And hit songs included Bing Crosby's Swinging on a Star and Jimmy Dorsey's Besame Mucho. And films included Meet Me in St. Louis and Double Indemnity. It's a really good year for films, actually. Films and ethical societies. 
So what did they imagine, those first few founders, in the midst of this very different world? What did they think that this new ethical society could bring to that world? How might it respond to or even shape the community around it? How might it serve the needs of its own people? I wonder, when they first gathered, how far they imagined. Did they think five years ahead or 10 years ahead? Could they have imagined 75 years in the future and what this ethical society or this world might look like? We know because of those meticulous history writers, notes of practically everything from the early years, who was on the board, who was on the Sunday school committee, who signed up to pledge, fascinatingly for me, what they talked about at Platform. And so we have recorded the title of the very first Platform address ever given at the Washington Ethical Society. It was given by a visiting leader, the leader of the New York Society at the time, Jerome Nathanson, and it was titled, America Faces the Future. So I think we can feel reasonably sure that they did indeed think big thoughts at that founding time, that they imagined who and what they might be. Some of the other platform titles that year included Politics, a Public Trust, The Future of the Good Neighbor Policy, which was a, um, a foreign policy specifically in Latin America at that time, the individual, the mass, and the state. And then the next year, Henry Newman, the leader of the Brooklyn Society, brought us Thanksgiving in a Troubled World. I might like him to do that again. Um, were he not dead, I suppose. Um, and Overcoming Prejudice from Mike Masaoka of the Japanese American Citizens League. Think again for just a moment about that time in American history and the questions that the Ethical Society was considering. Wondrous tales of evil told, wise and righteous youth and elders, dwelling in its gleaming wall, round is banished from its borders, justice reigns supreme. from Hale, the glorious golden city, comes from an even earlier founder, from Felix Adler, who founded the entire ethical culture movement in the late 19th century. We sing the song, Hail the Glorious Golden City, with some regularity here. In fact, I could hear echoes coming from the congregation as our small group in the chorus led us. I think people have mixed feelings about that song sometimes. It paints a huge and beautiful vision, a vision of ever upward and ever forward, a vision of the possibility of a 
perfect city, a city of the light. I wonder whether the founders in 1944 sang that song together. I wonder if they imagined that the city could come true. I wonder when they gathered in 1944 whether they could have expected or imagined August 6th and August 9th, 1945, when the U.S. dropped atomic bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Or if they could have imagined August 28th, 1963, when many society members took part in the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. If they could have foreseen either the passage of marriage equality in 2015 or the climate crisis that we face today. I asked some of the folks I know who were alive in 1944 what they expected in those years. Most of them were children at the time. But I asked whether what they experienced now in 2019 was imaginable to them. I know that when I was a child and I imagined 2019, I really thought we would have flying cars by now. I'm disappointed on that front. And indeed, the folks I spoke with who were alive in 1944 talked about the incredible changes in technology that they have seen over their lifetimes. Going from perhaps knowing someone on the block with a television or with a telephone to having access to the entire world's amassed digital knowledge in the palm of their hand, used obviously primarily for searching Sharpie memes and um, cat videos. What do we expect we might see in our future, here in this country, in this city, in the world? I find this exercise to be simultaneously depressing and reassuring in about equal parts. These days, I sometimes find it difficult to think beyond about a year from now. And so the reminder that history runs long is helpful to me. The reminder of that a long arc of justice. It's one of the reasons that I like talking to Ed Erickson, who was the leader here during the 1950s and is 90 now, and who navigated the McCarthy era, who answered the call from Dr. King to go to Alabama, and who thinks it's really bleak right now and also can remind me that it has been really bleak before. That sometimes that arc of history does bend toward justice if we all pull enough. And that we are in a moment now when imagining that arc to bend toward justice may indeed require a long view. That is the part of the long view of history, <clears throat> the 75 years out, that I find reassuring. On the other hand, ah, climate change, death, apocalypse. That's what I wrote here in this part of my platform. 
No one knows about that part of the 75-year outlook better than our children. The SEEK team and I were talking about how we wanted to explore expectation with our kids. You may hear them a little more than usual today because they are, um, uh, <laughs> I was going to say walking, but let's be honest. Um, <clears throat> they are moving their bodies with different rates of speed around the building uh, on a scavenger hunt, looking for the unexpected that they find all throughout our building inside and out. So we talked about different ways that they might explore that theme of expectation, and one of the ideas we came up with was to invite them to create a time capsule for 75 years from now, to write in that time capsule what they imagined 75 years ahead. And then we decided that we might not be prepared psychologically for the support they would require when they wrote their expectations for 75 years in the future. I had an entire meeting last week about lay leadership start off with a check-in that became a 15-minute conversation about how we might already be facing or even in mass extinction. I am usually a really optimistic person. Things will all work out is my general orientation toward life. It's why I rarely remember to schedule a cleanup crew at parties. Those of you who have planned events with me here know that. I always say, oh, people will pitch in. It'll be fine. <laughs> people will pitch in. It will be fine. <laughs> we look around at the world today and wonder whether the cleanup crew will indeed show up. And you know, I don't know the answer. We know already that the world's most vulnerable people will continue to be vulnerable because of extreme weather. Indeed, they already are. We know that some of the damage is irreversible. The next line in my platform just says, Greta is going to save us all, parentheses, hope is possible. Some of you may have been following the news about Greta Thornburg, the young woman from Sweden who recently sailed across the Atlantic uh, and arrived in New York City. She actually speaks tomorrow at the New York Society for Ethical Culture in a large event that they are hosting and providing space for. Now, I don't actually believe that Greta is going to save everyone. I don't think that one person can save everyone. That's sort of one of the points of humanism, actually, as it turns out. But I do believe that one person can inspire hope, can inspire action when we are feeling hopeless about that long arc. When we face something that looks absolutely terrifying, we either have the choice to say, oh, well, this isn't going to work out, and so I'm out of here, or we can put our energy and our money and our life choices and our votes toward change. And I think that is where the heroes like Greta come in. They give us the possibility of imagining that change is indeed possible, long arc style. Greta, as you've likely read about or seen pictures of, is um, uh, an unlikely hero in some ways and also totally exactly the hero that we might imagine needing now. 
She is a 16-year-old Swede who refers to autism as her superpower, who revels in her bluntness and her intentionally plain look. She has the, the whole look of a hero ready for this time. And she gets it that children are our future, not in some like cute way that we might sing a song about, but in the actual way, the literal way, the way that if they can't convince the rest of us to deal with this, then we won't have a future sort of way. Greta is one of the heroes that reminds us that we have a planet worth saving and a people ready for action to save it, a planet that is ours together. So here's the cool thing I learned about music several years ago, undoubtedly from Bailey Whiteman, our music director. There's a concept where um, hymns have a title, right? There's like a name to the tune. And those tunes might be centuries old or new, and they follow a particular meter. And, and what you can do if you know the right person to tell you <laughs> is you can put different words with different tunes. You can match them up, the tunes and the words, so that you can sing the same words to one tune and then to another tune or different words to the same tune. So, we, and when I say we, I do again mean Bailey, discovered a number of years ago that you could sing Hail the Glorious Golden City to one tune and then also to this tune that they sang this morning, and that you could sing to that same tune the words of a folk song written much more recently by the folk singer and songwriter Peter Mayer, Blue Boat Home. Blue Boat Home is an anthem of environmentalism in many ways. It's a song about the planet that we share. And unlike Hail the Glorious Golden City, which imagines and posits and plans for a city of the light that will exist just after we strive a little bit more, Blue Boat Home knows that we are pilgrims together, that we are wandering, sailing a ship, through the stars, finding our way as one. Blue Boat Home doesn't make promises, but it tells us we have ship's companions. I can't promise you anything. 
that's a different kind of congregation, I guess. The one we have here promises only companions for the journey. I definitely can't promise you that 75 years from now it's reasonable to expect that we will have solved the climate crisis or figured out some way to keep the earth habitable for humans long term. Expectation doesn't work like that for this. But I heard recently about a group of scientists at Harvard who are using calcium carbonate, you know, like Tums, to create a parasol that they're going to shoot up into the atmosphere over, I think, part of Boston to shield it temporarily from the harmful rays. And so I know I can expect that people are going to keep working on things like that, shooting Tums into the atmosphere, <laughs> inventing better cars, voting for politicians and policies nationally and internationally that will move us toward change. Even while I can also expect that people will keep undermining that work all at the same time. Someone said recently, as I was talking about this platform, that in 75 years, either things will have sort of worked out somehow or it won't really matter anymore. And I can't decide if that's fatalistic or some kind of like Buddhist adjacent spiritual wisdom. But it's true anyway. So is that the trick, I wonder, to expect nothing and therefore keep our disappointment at bay? We will later this month be thinking about both of those aspects of expectation, next week talking about disappointed expectations, and at the end of the month about the practice of expecting nothing. For me, though, the utility of the long view is that it helps me to continue my work or my hope in the face of what feels like immediate impossibility, precisely because 75 is really too many years for me to know what to expect. It's all a guess at that point, and so I might as well work for the thing I hope will come to be. That's certainly true in justice work. I couldn't have imagined some of the wins that we've had for civil rights even 20 years ago. I also couldn't have imagined some of the steps backward that we've taken. And that teaches me about the importance of being the hands that bend that moral arc. It's true in our own lives, too, I think. Sometimes I like to think about retirement. <laughs> It's not exactly 75 years from now, but it feels about that far away for me. The truth is that none of us know what those years ahead will hold. For me, for my family, every single one of you probably knows the way that life can turn out differently than you expected, changing sometimes in one moment in ways good and bad. Taking the long view helps in those change moments. It helps to remind us that things have changed before and then settled out, not back to how it was, but into something new, that our expectations have been able to adapt. 
It's true in a community like this one as well. One of the things I love about that incredibly detailed history is that along with the big vision they have cast, you also can see the minutia that they worried about, minutia that mattered right there along with their hopes for the society are the specific notes on how many people they needed to sign up for the $1.75 membership dinner that they held in order to stay afloat the notes on whether they would be able to make a go of it on August 1st, 1944, which was the day that the steering committee had too few members to continue as a committee. And most of the people involved in the society said, well, it was a nice try, but we might as well just let it go. The same way they had in 1918, the first time that an ethical society was organized here in DC, an ethical society that didn't quite take because the steering committee didn't quite have enough people and they did let it go. But somehow amidst that minutia, someone kept the long view. It was Claudia McColl, it turns out, who kept the long view, the way the history says it. Claudia McColl refused to give up and finally got everyone to agree to try for just one more month. One more month, starting on August 1st, 1944. Claudia McColl had a long view, which helped people make it through the short term. I've been here for 11 years now, long enough to have a bit of a long view myself, to know the ebbs and flows of congregational life, the way that some aspect of that life seems impossible to resolve, and then it does resolve maybe not in the way you expected. Expectations adapt, the long view helps. And it can be truly exciting to take that long view in a community like this one. Some of you know that Wes has not historically had an endowment, you know, that sort of long view financial building block. We have had regular yearly annual operating budget drives and we will continue to do so. This is not an announcement that the budget drive is going away. But in the last few years, we have created what we call a vision fund, an endowment that helps us take the long view. People give to that vision fund really anytime they want, but many folks choose to make legacy gifts. That's the kind of gift that is given after your death that you write into your will. And I just love, I love the idea behind that, almost more than the reality of it, than the, the money that goes in the bank. What is beautiful about it is imagining the intention the expectation, the vision for 75 years from now that the person who gives it will never see, but that they believe in because of all of us. The stewardship team is holding a drive this September, inviting all of you to give to the vision fund 75 cents 
or $7.50, or I don't know, you know, $750,000. Like you, you pick the multiple. It's not about the money, unless you give $750,000, then it will be about that. It's about the participation, about the possibility that each one of us can put in that 75 cents, which is a promise for 75 years from now, that we imagine just what the founders imagined in 1944. A society we cannot yet see that will look different than it does now, but that will meet the needs of its members and serve and shape the world. The long view. My colleague Leslie Takahashi wrote a short poem called On the Brink. And I love her words and want to close with them this morning. All that we have ever loved and all that we have ever been stands with us on the brink of all that we aspire to create. A deeper peace, a larger love, a more embracing hope, a deeper joy in this life we share. All that we have ever been stands with us on the brink. Our lives are all brinks between what was years and years past and what will be into a future we cannot imagine or expect. It is our hands and hearts that shape what lies beyond the brink.
Thank you to Amanda and our chorus for the words and music this morning. Now's a time where we share our own voice into uh, the platform and maybe what resonated or